3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that he who believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Authorized version I'm quoting because that's what I've memorized since a child. Um, but what a lovely time of the year. Today is Palm Sunday, of course, where we remember the whole declaration of intent concerning Jesus as he comes fulfilling prophecy, uh, riding on the donkey and being received with palm leaves like royalty. And then it's not long before he faces the heart-rending moments, both in the Last Supper, as we term it, and uh, Gethsemane, of course. So we, we start a whole world of seeming contradictions that take place, seeming contradictions. It's a declaration of God's intent to reach to us and to help us come through by his grace onto a whole new uh, basis of operation and destiny for eternity. And so it's this being caught between these realities of what we see and what we don't quite grasp. But God declares to us anyway his love for us. I think of the words of Jesus when he said, um, I, I have not come into the world to condemn the world that the world through me might have life. I've come to bring life and bring it with such generosity, abundance, uh, that it will even be, in my wording, paraphrase, too much. More than we can really experience. Wonderful. The measure of God's generosity towards us. So this time of year is a very important year of declaration of God's intent and the history we know of as we look back on and uh, especially as we come to Easter Sunday next week and we celebrate the resurrection. But I want to talk about this declaration, these words of hope. God brings to us, and I'm, I'm going to contrast it with two different statements, but first of all, let me just read to you about this in Matthew's Gospel, if you would turn with me for a moment, I should say, into uh, John's Gospel. And uh, John chapter 12. And John chapter 12 is very interesting because we're on the verge of understanding this reality of the supernatural, and yet not quite understanding it. And that's the paradox I want to bring at this moment, remembering Palm Sunday, first of all. I'm breaking in at uh, verse 9. A large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there at the house where Lazarus was and came not only because of him but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. You'd think you were dealing with the mafia, wouldn't you? This is, it's, it does actually say chief priests. So it's amazing how religion can work against God. Uh, but we think all religion is pure, all religion is not pure. There's a form of religion that denies God. And we have to wake up to that reality. This is, this is allowing the reality of God's intent to dawn on us 
in spite of what might be camouflaging it by the reaction of people who should know better. Verse 10, so the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. And the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion, see your king is coming, seated on a donkey coat, donkey's coat. At first his disciples, this is interesting, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done that and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the blood continued to spread the word. And many people because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to another, one another, Hallelujah, praise God, this is wonderful. No, they said, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So you're on the verge of a reality where God's declaring his intent, but he's in charge of the world, he's got his king, and I'm going to give you flashes of this reality, and you're going to see the power of who he is and the effect that he has on human beings. And this is unfolded in John 12, but you have to read earlier in the chapter to understand the context. The context is Jesus relaxing in a home with his friends, and of course with Lazarus sitting on the sofa with him, so to speak, and Lazarus having been raised from the dead by his word of authority, Jesus' word of authority. So you've got this context about the power of a death, the resurrection power of Jesus the King. And in that context, you've got a woman who turns up with the most expensive offering. I mean, she, she really does break open the bank when she bursts the alabaster box, so to speak, the perfume all over Jesus. And she recognizes something about what he's about to go into. She understands he's going to pay a price. He's going to offer himself sacrificially to save the world. She's, she's got a revelation that even the treasurer hasn't got who carries the bag for Jesus. The committee have not yet caught up with the reality. Something's happening bigger than they've grasped. And so this little caveat, we didn't understand all this until after Jesus was glorified, is a key. But the context is resurrection, the witness, living proof, Lazarus, Jesus is the resurrection. And when somebody spontaneously in the spirit sees who Jesus really is and comes with this expensive perfume, the alabaster box, breaks it open and worships him and anoints his body ready for burial. And then the reaction of the inner team, where the treasurer thinks, what an utter waste. This could have done our program good to have all this in the bank. What a waste of 
uh, money, if you like, resources. And then Jesus has to rebuke uh, the blindness and the self-centeredness of Judas. And then he has to commend the woman because she's moved in the spirit and she's got in touch with the reality. God's intention to save the world from its sin and from the devil and from darkness. That's the context in which all this takes place and then God declares his intent. Now, the reason why I'm reading it like this is just to warn you that we don't always grasp the reality. Often, we are caught in an illusion. It sounded good for the treasurer to be concerned about wasting money on Jesus. Sounds good. Now we know better. We think we are clever. It's only because we've got hindsight and the help of the Holy Spirit to show us. It sounded reasonable what he was saying. And sometimes the reasonable is not the really the reality. The reasonableness is not the reality. And sometimes we're on the border of something new and something great and we haven't gotten onto it. And most of the New Testament's written like that. The theologians came afterwards. The truth was even the apostles were catching up with what God was doing. He was ahead of them. And I want to say on this uh, Palm Sunday, God's declaration is clear. It was made well before Jesus came, and it continues to be stated today. In our world, the kingdoms of this world belong to the kingdom of God. That's politic, that's economy, that's social, so, social enterprise, business enterprise. Ordinary everyday life belongs to the Lord. The world is the Lord's. And all that's in it, that's you and me too. You might not always know that, think that, see that. That's the declaration of God's intent. This is a big issue. And we live in such a world where everybody's running after illusions. But the reality is, God's in charge. And as we look at Palm Sunday, I'm encouraged by God's declaration. And I'm grateful, genuinely, I'm honestly grateful that God at least many years ago opened my eyes to the reality that God intends, uh, God's intention for us is to give us a future, to give us a hope. God's intention is for us to succeed on his terms of success. God's intention is for us to enter into the reality of all that he has secured for us. Now I say that because I want to take you back to an instance similar to where God declares his intention and the people haven't quite caught up. And it's the same as Palm Sunday. And if you're turning your Bibles and go right back almost to the book of Genesis into the book of Deuteronomy. And I want to say some things to you about this book of words that are important for us today. And it's chapter 1 of Deuteronomy. And the book of words. Because words are important. What we say, what we think, our own confession is very important. Because at the end of the day, what you confess 
And what you accept in your philosophy of mind is what will govern you. But God has made his declaration clear. And in Deuteronomy, Moses is coming to the end of 120 years of living. Lord, help us. I mean, I mean, we think we're living longer now, but in these days, maybe they measure time differently, I don't know. But clearly Moses has had a full life. And he'd witnessed some powerful things take place, even through his own hands. The parting of the Red Sea is one thing that springs straight to mind. But right from the beginning, Moses is dealing with God's intention to set his people free. God's intention to give them a future, give them dignity, clothe them with a sense of being endowed with dignity. Correct? Am I hearing amen or are you going to sleep? So God's always been up front from the beginning. Now here's Moses coming to the end of his life and he's now addressing a new generation. And he's witnessed the passing of a generation of 40 years in transit. And he's speaking from his heart. And I'm going to read the first few verses of chapter 1. These are the words of Moses spoken to all Israel in the desert east of the Jordan. That was in the Arabah opposite the Suf between Paran and Tafel. You need a, you need a, you need a satnav to find out where they were in the desert. They were in the place what I call the land of the in-between. They knew where they needed to get, just like the prophecy that came earlier. They knew where they'd come from, they knew where they were at, and they knew where they needed to get, but they were stuck in the middle, in the place of the in-between. And sometimes, that's where we get stuck too. We know God's word, we know God's intent, we know how it's all going to end up, it's going to be all right on the night, as I would say. That's a sermon worth preaching, by the way. It'll be all right on the night. It's true. It will be. The end, actually, is even greater than the beginning, because in the end is a new beginning, and the new beginning is far more glorious than that which has come before. So we know it will be all right on the night. God's in charge. However, in the place of the in-between, we can get caught between the illusion and the reality. We can think God's not for us, though we wouldn't dare say that, but it's what we say to ourselves. And we wonder, where on earth are we going? How on earth are we going to get there? And sometimes our confession denies God's intention. And so Moses is coming to the end of his life and he wants to speak to them. And he speaks from the depth of his heart. And I just want to take a verse tucked away here just to save time. Verse 5. Because we will, we will not see this. East of the Jordan, the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound his law, saying... Say the word expound for a moment. Expound. Expound. What does that mean to you? Open up. Um, explain. In the Hebrew, it's a phrase, and it means to dig a well. So Moses wants to explain to them, inspire them, impart to them the significance of God's intention. But in the land of the in-between, and if you're in the desert, even the dust gets in your nose. 
your socks, but you don't wear them in the desert. There's no way you can deny the fact you're going through an in-between time. But Moses does something quite unique, and he takes four main speeches before he leaves, before he passes on. I say because he leaves and passes on, because though it says Moses is dead, they can never find his body. Just as well, otherwise we would have been still kissing his toes today, like they do in certain parts of uh, religion where they're worshipping the relic. But he, he digs deep a well. Well, I was, I was in Africa just recently in um, Zimbabwe and I was right out in the countryside and I'd taken some gifts to some families in Zimbabwe, uh, people who were uh, struggling. And so I took a whole suitcase of stuff for the children and some little things from England for them. And I was on their the little property that was half built and the thing that was their pride and glory was this well. And it was just there on the floor, a slight mound, and I had to keep it clear because and clean with a lid on it for two reasons. One, for safety, because I had a little toddler who would just drop into that well and never be found again. And also because of the parasites and the things that will infect the water. And I did a little research on water. Wells are important. If you dig them too deep, you end up having some, some um, arsenic. You have to know what you're doing with a well. A well has to be pure, has to be clean. Uh, it's your lifeblood. So I'm standing looking at this well and I'm thinking of the words of Moses. He dug deep out of his well, deep in the depth of his spirit, deep in the depth of his knowledge, deep in the depth of his integrity. That's what it means, expound. But he came from deep within himself. This was no mission statement. This was no advert. This was a governing principle of his life. And he could honestly say, and he'd been through the bad and the good and the ugly. And now he's appealing to them. Four major speeches. speeches. One that examines where they've come from. One that states where they're at. One that states what they must give themselves to. And one that prophesies about the future. He hasn't got time to write that all down. So he, he, he's coming deep. But he's letting them know God's got an agenda for their life. And he's speaking from his heart. Frankly, I, I, I don't know about you, but I find those moments are rare. When somebody speaks and you know that they're bringing to you a deposit, and it's almost in an unexpected moment, and it's gripping you, and it's refreshing you, and it's awakening you, and startling you, and demanding a response. That's the kind of declaration Moses was making. And I want to show you four things about this that concern you. And I'm going to use four chairs because I'll sit in them from time to time um, just to explain. But uh, this one is about Moses. And you have to know about Moses, he was chosen. He was chosen. Say the word with me, chosen. Um, he, he couldn't deny it. He, he looked back on his life uh, and, and he rehearses to himself. At the time when I was born, all male babies 
for being put to death in my tribe, in my people. An edict that came from the throne of a bad king, a leader who was trying to protect his own interests. And I was wrapped up and put into this little piece of bitumen and floated out into the mile. And somehow, in the economy of God, someone reached out, but not just anybody. Pharaoh's daughter, she picked me out of the water, a sure end, a sure death, she chose me. And so all his life, now he's 120, and even though he wasn't old enough to even articulate it, when it happened, it had a lasting impression upon his life. I was chosen. The Bible says to those who put their trust in Jesus, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are sons and daughters of the kingdom, right? And you can just Google that if you want to find out where the text is for time's sake. But the issue was he was chosen. However, we're going to become the front row <laughs> in a moment. However, it was contested. And there's no, there's no doubt about it. He grew up in a very uh, salubrious circumstance. He was well-educated, extremely wealthy, probably one of the most important heirs for the future to the biggest superpower that ever was. And here he is, and he sees somebody attacking one of his fellow Israelites, and he loses his cool and tries to save the guy, and in doing so he kills the man. And then even the guy who he tried to help, it's like interfering in a, in a marriage dispute. You try to save two people from hitting each other, you get in the middle and you're damned, right? And he's damned. He's contested, and he runs away for 40 years into the backside of the desert, chosen but contested. Now the truth is, truth is, everyone who's chosen will be contested. Hello? I'm going through a bad time. I just really, I don't know where God is in this matter. And I really believe in, in prosperity. And here I am going through a bad time. Listen to me. Jesus said, you know, it's possible that in the world, not possible, it's probable, that in the world you will suffer persecution. But be of good courage, I've overcome the world. My intention is for you to rule, to reign, and not to be overcome, but to become an overcomer, correct? But you will be contested. Now, here you've got Jesus riding on a donkey. Declaration of God's intent that righteousness will reign. Would you dare believe that they would contest him? They healed the sick, raised the dead, spoke words of reality. And what were they saying is, who is this upstart? Let's take Lazarus out as well as Jesus. We'll soon, we'll soon see about the resurrection of the dead. We'll put them both to, dead, to death. 
He's contested. And Moses knew what it was to be in the backside of the desert, in the place of it in between. I was going to say it, but it's not quite true, actually. My wife loves the desert. I have to say that to you. My wife has a strange case. She loves the desert and she loves the cold. So her dream would be one day, maybe if we ever believe in retirement, one day we'll go to the Arctic. And we'll spend a week looking at the, oh, the glaciers. And Betty loves the cold, right? I said, it's cold this morning. Oh, it's wonderful, though, isn't it? It's fresh. She said, it's fresh. And she also likes the desert. I remember being in Africa, traveling for miles and miles and miles in the desert. And um, there seemed to be nothing around except these huge tortoises crossing the road and snakes from time to time. But, and I'd say to Beth, what do you think of this place? She said, oh, it's beautiful. I said, what's so beautiful, love? Oh, the vastness. Untouched. Unspoiled. She loves the desert. But when you've been to 40 years in the backside of the desert, I think you'd soon lose your... Well, I think. But anyway, here he is. He's contested. And he's hiring from what God wants him to achieve. And maybe he needs to brew a little bit on the forgiveness of God. Maybe he needs to examine himself and deal with his pride. Maybe he needs, just like Joseph did with all of his dreaming that was accurate, but my, 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 it was too much in his head. And maybe there are times that we've got to go through our contests and our challenges, and maybe all things work together for good. Maybe God is at work in all things for our good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But contested. I'm used to it, actually. You know, I, I sit on the board with United Christian Broadcasters. I work with our operation of churches, our humanitarian endeavors. I move into China and deal with the persecuted believers. And I'm used to what it's like to be contested. I never, ever allow that which contests the good to rob me of my confession. God is for us. God is with us. God will see us through. And even when you tell me it can't be done, God tells me it can. Who am I going to believe anyway? All things are possible, even though it's contested. Correct? She's in the backside of the desert. It's contested. And then someone, yeah, thank you very much. It's, it's, uh, it's lovely having children. Uh, the call of God comes to him. And this call of God is God saying, come on, Moses, enough is enough. It's time to come from the in-between, from the backside of the desert. It's time to become the head and not the tail. It's time to command your circumstances. It's time to break open and move in confidence with me to set my people free and have an impact on a generation to come. It's time. And you can say, but Lord, I've had enough. I know you chose me. I've, I've, I've always experienced the contest. Lord, please don't call. Don't call me. But the call comes, and what an what a unusual call. And he stumbles on a 
what seems to be a bramble bush on fire but not burning out as if it's supernatural. Though you might say, oh, well, these occurrences happen so often in the desert, but no, this, this, is the, this is not a common occurrence. So it seems natural, it's supernatural, because the bush is on fire but it's not burning out. And he must have stood long enough to realize that one without being a dumbwit. But something's going on here, and then the presence of God in the most unlikely place God turns up. I just want you to know that God isn't sterile. God doesn't have to have everything perfect. God can turn up in the most unlikely places of the threshing floor for Gideon, in the fire for Daniel, correct? coming through closed doors in a wall, through a wall, God can turn up whenever he likes. He created the world, so he must know how to manipulate it for his own interests. Correct? And God turns up in a bush. What's a bush? An ignorant, good-for-nothing piece of bramble. And God fills Moses in this call with a spirit that comes alive and on fire, and it's a bit like this. If I could sit there at this moment of call on Moses in the desert, God says, I don't want to fill your head with information. I want to impart you with a fire that will never go out. And it won't destroy you, but it will see you through all your days. And you'll have your bucket, instead of full of words, full of fire unquenchable fire, passion, determination, whatever the contest, it will achieve its purpose. Frankly, I don't know how old you are, I'm still 26, I mean 62, some, some, some configuration of that. Um, but there's a fire inside of me that I can't go out. And you know, I've been stupid sometimes, I've been thick, skulled, stubborn. And times when I've, I've tried to work things out, but this fire right since a child has never left me. I remember trying to give up on God once, that was hilarious. So stupid, how can you give up on God? If you can turn up on the backside of the desert, you can turn out through your television screen. Right? God can get you. It's true. Fill your bucket with fire. And that's what he did. The call of God came to him. And he repositioned the latter part of his life to have an impact on a generation that knew nothing of these things. And he imparted to them a wisdom, an understanding, a determination to enter into all that God had for them. So, chosen, contested. What's this one? Called. Last one. Because there's a coffee shop upstairs. <laughs> Captured. I love this one. I, I cry about this. I laugh about it. I cry about it. I love this. Moses could not get away from the fact he was a prisoner of a vision of the kingdom of God. He gave up everything for this. 
That's what it says in Hebrews, by the way, if you interpret from what Hebrews says, that he, he decided, instead of going for all the carnality of Egypt, my, 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 was that the technological craze of the day? He gave it all up because he was captured by a vision. And when he's digging deep in the well, this is the well of reality. And he's appealing to a generation, a whole new generation. He's saying, listen, come alive to this reality. The kingdoms of this world belong to our God. The king is coming and he will rule the hearts of men and women. And so he's saying it's time for you to possess the reality. It's time for you to enter in, but I want you to know, even when you enter in, you still let, let God down, you still make mistakes, and you'll fail to live to the full potential of God's intent for your life, to at least reach for it. And take hold of what God's got. Acquaint yourself. Deuteronomy chapter 30 in particular, you'll see it, um, um, I think it's chapter 15 verse 30, but there's, there's a text there where he says, listen, O generation, to the generations that have passed. Awake yourself to the reality God's been expressing his intention right from the beginning. I can see it in my life. I can see it in the generation that's passed. I can see it in the generation to come. You have to be captured by a vision in the words of Jesus before the woman broke the box. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Make that your priority, the lordship of Christ. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all the things you need will be added unto you. Of course you need your daily bread. Of course you need to be able to live and clothe yourself in a fashionable style. Of course. If you will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, He'll take care of all your needs. When I first moved from Liverpool to Loughton in Essex, of course, um, with my young family, I was a pastor in Liverpool, church, a couple hundred people, and then we established another church on the world, about 180 people. And we had some real growing concerns that were really going well. And I was asked by one of the brothers in ministry, would I consider coming to Loughton? And of course, I didn't know where Loughton was. I was a northerner. I was a Liverpoolian, right? Inner city Liverpool. Trained in South Wales, so I had a bit of a Welsh lilt. Um, and I was uh, in the Bible College of Wales there, and I was a pastor now in this inner city, and we were planting these churches. And I was asked, would I come to Loughton? And at the time, the market in the north on the housing market had collapsed, and we were in a recession. And in the south, it was still booming, going up. Each house was going up. They were calculating a thousand pounds a month, the value of property in the south. And the Lord asked us to come. 
And I remember going round the shops, you know, the housing, the housing uh, market, estate agents, and going in on the sites of the new builds and so on. And I got to a house that would be suitable <laughs> for our family. And I kid you not, it was ten, time the, ten times the cost of the house we have in Liverpool and less the size. We had a beautiful house uh, towards, um, well, in Liverpool by the waterside. And so we got to this house and I said to Beth, honey, you know what, we can't afford this. This is way beyond the church had gone down to next to nobody in numbers, in terms of numbers. And they couldn't afford to pay us a salary. And so here I am trying to beg God now to come. It's taken me 18 months to get from Liverpool to Loughton. In the meantime, every day I would I'd go home and sleep on the motorway, three in the morning after the Sunday. And I'd be, be falling asleep trying to get back to Liverpool. And here's the house we needed. And I remember Christine Mansell was with us, and David. And she looked at me and she laughed. We were in the, we were in the kitchen area, I think, one of the nice areas of, of, of this house. And it was a showroom. And she said, I've got a word from God for you. And she doesn't usually speak like that, Christine. She said, I believe what the Lord wants is for you to ask him for your needs, not just your desires. In other words, what do you need? You need four bedrooms, and you need a room to entertain in your kitchen for people from the church. I think you need to ask the Lord, and you know what? We fell on our knees, ridiculous as it sounds. We got on our knees, we fell in the middle of the showroom. Oh Lord, you said you will supply all our needs. Now, frankly, Lord, I don't need to come to Loughton. You've asked me to come. I'm asking you, God, because I've got no money. The church has got no money. Will you supply our needs? Well, we went to the estate agent over there and we said to them, I think it was at the time, Wimpy. There you go. There's illustrious for you. And um, we did a deal with Wimpy. No money hadn't sold the house. In the end, we made this exchange and we got into this house and the mortgage company agreed for the mortgage. And then I kept sending the money and it kept coming back. And they said, you have no account with us. And for two years, they denied that we had a mortgage with them. Two years. So we lived two years no mortgage in a house we couldn't afford to pay the mortgage for anyway. In those two years, the church shot up, didn't it? It grew, and the church was able to give us some resource to be able to live. And in a wonderful way, God, and people from all over the country who knew Betty and I had sent us money. I think it was around about 30,000 pounds in all in total, near 40,000 pounds, which helped us with the deposits, everything. Wonderful provision of God. And then two years later, the mortgage company said, excuse us, you have a mortgage and you haven't paid it for two years. I said, welcome to the real world. 
I said, you have at least 12 letters from me, duly signed, with the checks that you returned denying that I had a mortgage. Now you would like to be paid, well, I've got the money saved up, but you're not having the interest. <laughs> Is it a deal? It's a deal. So they lost the mortgage for two years. That meant that I didn't have to pay the interest, which was the amount I couldn't afford. And God, in a wonderful way, supplied my deeds. If you will be captured to God's intent for your life, seek first his kingdom, be a captive of a vision, make me a captive, Lord. I'm not doing my own thing. I'm surrendered to you. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he shall not lose. A young man who laid down his life as a young man in the South Americas uh, for the gospel. What a beautiful statement. No fool gives what he cannot keep to gain what he shall not lose. Seek first. Be captured by a vision. This church, this particular church, I have known, wow, how many years would this be now? Yes, pardon? Nearly 30, is it really? So when I was knee-high to a grasshopper, right? This church, whatever might have been the contest that it had faced, this church knew it was called of God. Correct? Chosen, called, contested many times. But what I can say about this church, whatever location you took, you were captured by a vision for the kingdom. We believed in diverse ministries. We believed in the nature of the church, participatory nature of the believers in the church, correct? We believed in reaching to the poor. We believed in the nations, the kingdom dimension. This is not just a congregation. This is a community that's captured by a vision. And I'm saying all this because out of the well, God spoke his intent. And I want to say to you, on this Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode on the donkey, even though he was resisted and contended, all God was doing was calling to those who would dare to believe against the odds. The king is here. His name is Jesus. Surrender your life to him, and you'll lack for no good thing. Correct? And today I appeal to a generation that didn't see some of the miracles I've seen. You've seen. Understand what God is doing. Catch up to his intention. And determine in your heart and life, whatever your age, whatever your stage, I'm going for you, Lord. And I'm committed to those who are similar. And I want to establish your kingdom in this generation. And I couldn't care if I'm 124. Keep the fire burning. Amen? And we will lack for no good thing. Happy Easter, everybody. Celebrate this special time where you realize again and again 
his intention is good perfect and he'll never leave us nor forsake us shall we give him an applause thank you Lord thank you